Hello and welcome to another episode of the Indie Alternative Podcast. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Andy York and Nigel Powell of Unbelievable Truth. It was such a treat to speak to Andy and Nigel as Unbelievable Truth were such a big influence to my music uh, back in the day um, and they were on great form. And we get to hear about the early days of the band, how they wrote and recorded um, record label shenanigans and loads of other stuff. It was a real pleasure. Just before we hit the interview, here's a quick reminder of all the ways that you can support the podcast. Um, you can follow me on social media and all those links are, as always, in the show notes. And if you'd like to buy me a virtual coffee to support the podcast financially, you can do that as well. And the link is in the show notes. And finally, if you haven't written a review or left a rating, if you could do that, that would be amazing. Anyway, that's it for the waffle. Here's Andy and Nigel. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Andy York, Nigel Power. How are you? We are good. <laughs> Andy speaks for me. How often do you, do you guys sort of talk? Do you still keep in regular contact or what, what's the situation? Um, yes, uh, me, me and Andy are still best friends. I mean, this is the moment when Andy goes, are we? But... Uh, <laughs> Um, I endorse that. <laughs> uh, me and Andy are best friends and talk. Uh, you know, we're geographically apart, so we don't see each other face to face all that much. But yeah. uh, we talk regularly enough, and I'm still friends with Jace as well. And um, we did. So you know, we did ask Jace if he wanted to come onto this, and he said it's fine. You guys just do it. Which I, I don't. I mean, back in the day. We did used to do views with all three of us, and Jace would literally just not say anything and just kind of look quite awkward about it. Um, so uh, he he knows his own limitations in that respect. So he said, "It's fine." <laughs> do you get asked to talk about unbelievable truth a lot nowadays, or is it you know is it nice to sort of delve back into those times? Uh, I don't get asked to talk about it at all, and it's very nice, Andy. Yeah, same here. I think this is the first time I've been asked, um, really, uh, for like 15 years, probably. Uh-huh. Um, the memories, I have to say, are, are have faded a bit for me. But luckily, you, we've got Nigel here, who has kind of a photographic memory. and can tell you where we were playing on the 15th of November, uh, 1999. See, you're saying that, but just before we started recording there, Chris reminded me that we'd met before because <laughs> his band supported Dive Dive at the Winchester Railway Inn, and I didn't remember that. So You, um, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't remember us. We were awful. <laughs> well, well, you, mean, might, you, you might have remembered us for that reason. <laughs> exactly. Sometimes that makes things very memorable. So yeah. perhaps then we can assume that you actually weren't that awful and you're just doing yourself down. Yeah, probably. Uh, I don't look back at all those gigs very fondly, unfortunately. But it didn't work what, out. What, what was the name of the band? <laughs> we were called the Alaskan Pipeline. And we did acoustic driven rock kind of melancholy stuff. So um, Ben at the railway put us on with Dive Dive for some reason, who were <laughs> punk rock. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, the good old days. I mean, the programming. Yeah, let's go back a bit, if you don't mind, go back to the, the early days. And I'd, I'd, I always like to know uh, or find out a bit about your musical influences. Um, so I'll ask you both individually. Nigel, you can go first. But I mean, in terms of, you know, music and how you grew up with music and your first sort of artist that you got into, 
what kind of bands were you listening to? Well, given that we're talking about Unbelievable Truth, this is probably all going to sound a little bit odd because, um, I mean, a- Andy's a very important part of this story because I first got into music and got passionate about music through my brother's taste in music, essentially, because I've got a brother who's three and a half years older than me. So the f- the first band I was probably really... Well, it's the first the first act I was really passionate about. The first single I bought was Adam Adam and the Ants, hmm. um, which, looking back, um, it was the first album, uh, first kind of uh, album of that lineup, Kings of the Wild Frontier. And um, sometimes you go back to stuff that you liked when you were a kid, and you listen to it later on and go, "Oh, oh that stinks!" But Kings of the Wild Frontier, I went back to recently, and I and it's much better than I would have had any idea that it was when I was, you know, 11 years old. Um, and then from there, I I really loved Marillion and Iron Maiden. They were very early things. Um, lots of bands here that uh, sound nothing at all like Unbelievable Truth. Um, I really liked In Excess at school. I liked some Level 42. And then um, I met Andy. Uh, I'm not really sure why why <laughs> why he liked me, but one of his earliest acts was to uh, give me a C90 with um, loads of REM on. And that quickly became, I was like, these guys are great. And, mm. you know, Andy introduced me to Pixies and REM and um, stuff like that. So so that's kind of my earliest formative things. Andy, what about yourself then in, in growing up in the York household? What, was, what yeah. was playing in the radio on the in the kitchen? Yeah, I also have um, a brother who's about three and a half years older. Um and uh which you might know um <laughs> and so yeah i uh i was lucky enough because of that to be um listening to some really amazing stuff at quite an early age i particularly remember listening to a lot of um david bowie let's dance and um hunky dory and sort of joe jackson and um that kind of thing and and yeah and a bit later on life's rich pageant was um was the thing that Tom and I first got into on the REM side. I think by the time I I met Nigel, REM was a was a big thing for both of us. Um and I guess Elvis Costello as well, if or maybe that came a little bit later, but certainly was a, a thing that we both bonded over. Hmm. In terms of like finding a voice, writing songs together, how did that come about? Um well, I'd, uh, I'd, sorry, I never want to, I'm terrible. I don't never want to interrupt, but, uh, pod, uh podcasts are rubbish. Everyone will be going, no, after you. So I'm just going to talk. Shut okay. up, York. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I was kind of, we were in a band at school, but this, this is basically the way we met mm-hmm. is through bands because, um, I moved to Abingdon when I was 13. Um, and I didn't know anybody and I was a 13 year old and very socially awkward. Um, and the, the way I actually kind of op- started opening up to people is, um, my parents had a bit of guilt about moving me away from London where we'd grown up, um, to this new place and me having no friends. And I parlayed that guilt into them buying me a Porter studio, which was, um, not something that today's kids would recognize, but it's like a little cassette. Um, multi-track thing that uh, was all we had to record on back in my day 
and I started mentioning this around school and the uh, the manager of a band called um, Illiterate Hands, the Illiterate Hands at the time, came and said, hello. Actually, his voice was very high. Hello, I understand you've got a means of recording bands. Can you record our band? And so through that, I met um, I met Andy and Johnny, who were in the band, and um, Matt, the other guitarist, and Simon, the bass player, mm-hmm. and and recorded them. And uh, at the time, they were they had a drum machine, and I convinced them that they should uh, get a real drummer. So I kind of wheedled my way into the band. Um, but then after school, I was kind of much more um, driven to be in the band, doing band things, like straight out of school. I had offers to go to university, but instead I went, you know what? I just want to be in a band. So I joined a band. In fact, I joined about four bands, mm-hmm. but um, I was in a band with Jason called Purple Rhinos, and we we played a lot for a kind of baby band. We were... And then that split up. And while this was happening, um, Andy had gone away to Russia. So I'm delving into Andy's story now, but he can give you the juicy details. And then I got a letter from him saying, I've written some songs. Maybe we can get together and play them. Uh, I've still got that letter. Is is that, a, that is that how you remember it, Andy? Um, yeah, I think I don't think I did a lot of writing with the school band that we were in. I don't remember doing much apart from contributing a whistling solo and um, <laughs> and uh, in sort of not very good improvised saxophone stuff as well. Um, but yeah, then I went away um, went away to live in Russia for a year as part of my um, degree, and I got a cheap Russian guitar. And I was, um, I made really good friends with a Russian guy called Mike. And we spent a lot of time just sort of jamming and playing REM covers and that kind of thing. Um, and I think I started, yeah, I started to come up with a few ideas during that, during that year. And, um, uh, yeah, so yeah, I, I was quite excited about, about that. Yeah. So when, when we got, together after that Nigel and I the the sort of songwriting dynamic um started to establish itself I guess which was principally and always has been like I, I think it's the, the the fact that I've got quite a good melodic sense and come up with nice melodies but I'm a little bit um musically illiterate in a way um don't have a great grasp of theory or I, I couldn't change a key mid song to save my life. So, so Nigel would tend, tend to come up with, with a lot of the kind of interesting musical structure, I guess. Mm. And I would contribute uh, the melody and yeah. And it's kind of remained that way. I've, I've never really picked up that, that side of things. But, did yeah. the... but my, my feeling about it, sorry. Cutting in on you there, Chris. No, it's um, okay. It's okay. Go on. <laughs> my my feeling about it was, it's kind of exactly as Andy says. Is I'm going to get a bit un-English and over-complimentary, but he's he's got such a beautiful voice and such an amazing sense of melody that it was perfectly possible for Andy to just play a C chord for two minutes and sing over it, and it would sound 
you know, it would sound amazing. It would sound like a song. Mm. Um, but then I would tend to come in, into it and go, you know, if this is going to be, you know, if it's going to have a, have slightly more to it in the background, perhaps I can take this melody and I can actually shift, you know, we can use more than one chord. Yeah, um, yeah. And, uh, and then, and Jace would usually come up, Jace would come up with amazing bass lines and these really, really weird guitar riffs, which would um, give the, give what we were writing a, a very distinct flavor always. In in terms of writing, it, it took a little while to really get our groove, but um, in terms of writing, it was, it was about, it, it's, it's the most perfect creative experience I've ever had. Um, as we were kind of going through the early days, um, there was a little while where neither me nor Andy were that good at guitar. Jace, Jace was good at guitar, but he was, he was a little, he was great at writing stuff, but in terms of his playing at the time, he was, he wasn't very aggressive. He couldn't bring stuff out of it. So we got a guitarist in who was a really amazing player, a guy called Ken. Um, but we just stopped writing mm. because it just took something out of the chemistry while he was there. And, I really remember the, uh, eventually we realized we weren't writing. So I broke the news to Ken that we were going to go back to being a three piece. And we had a uh, rehearsal, uh, like the week after that, I think, and just the three of us sat in a rehearsal room. And I think we wrote, it was three and a half songs, basically completely in, in that one session. Mm. We, we did all of almost here. Uh, sorry. No, all of, um, forget about me. I remember we did that. We did half of a song called Covers that ended up on the second album. And uh, there were were two others as well. And it was just coming out and we could barely stop it. And it was almost like being part of one one person. It was, you know, three brains that were just very in tune with each other. I remember like the next band was trying to come in and we were supposed to be leaving. But it was like, sorry, we're just writing something else. Just wait two more minutes. Yeah. I mean, I I loved it. It was the most satisfying thing I could imagine. Did it take much in in terms of the evolution or finding your signature kind of sound? Was there lots of like reiterations of it? Was there lots of incarnations of it? Until you kind of settled on the 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 kind of the sound that kind of you're you're known for. I can't remember if we discussed this, Andy, but I feel like we did. That we kind of wanted to be a male throne muses kind of thing mm. particularly there was there was a b-side of one of their singles called cotton mouth which had a lot of acoustic guitar in and we, we wanted to focus on acoustics i don't know why we just did maybe that was because it was the only guitars we owned um but that was a particular touchstone and the first few demos kind of rested on that a bit and i i, I also had this half idea that i wanted to bring in some prog rock influences it, but it was after that we did a few things naturally and it was like hang on this is much better let's let's follow this up um is, is, is that about right andy yeah i i don't remember a huge amount of like effort or conscious thought going into kind of crafting a, a particular sound it felt like it at least from where i was sitting um it happened quite naturally uh, I do, I do remember, um, I don't remember at what stage this, start thinking about it, but we certainly had in, we, we had some 
vague thoughts about wanting to sound like Talk Talk as well. Um, I think certainly by the time we were recording the first album, we were thinking thinking about that. And I think Nigel at the time didn't necessarily know a lot of um, late Talk Talk. And so it was kind of thinking, right, well, I needed to sound like this thing that I don't actually know what it sounds like, but I guess it sounds like this. Um, um, so there was a bit of that going on. Yeah, absolutely. I, Andy was telling me I had to uh, had to listen to um, the Color of Spring, and I kept promising the, him that I would, and finally got around to it about three years ago. So, <laughs> well, that that but, whole co- uh, the whole thing at the time I remember I was hugely influenced by your sound, and because uh, I was getting in, com- you were coming out of that, you know, the Britpop era, the, the, you know, that big happy clappy. If you, that's not really the way to describe it, but it was kind of very bright and colourful. And then we had this, I suppose, kind of an acoustic movement, but you were kind of on the forefront of that. You kind of preceded that acoustic movement. And we were aware of a shifting tide, I guess, in the in the music or the indie music scene at that time. No. Am I, am I overthinking it? Well, I mean, it, I think you're just giving us much too much credit that, in the, yeah. to, to have had any idea what was going on. We we were just doing our our own thing, and and it was it was really in, instinctive, you know. So, uh, I mean, for instance, uh, did you go away a second time, Andy? Because I remember, or, or possibly you came back for a little while in the middle mm-hmm. of your trip to Russia, and we recorded some stuff, and then you went away again. Is it? Because there was a time when you were away, um, and to pick a song which perhaps is most identifiably us um, solved. I remember the writing off, um, or certainly the kind of initial writing off, very clearly. Because Jace was round at, I was actually still at my dad's house at the time, and he was there. Andy was in another country, and. Um, uh, it kind of got to about 11 o'clock and Jay said, I've got to go to work tomorrow. I better go. And we were both holding guitars. And literally as we were walking from the sofa to the door, Jay's just kind of started picking out the, the core, what turned into the chorus riff. Mm. And I kind of played a couple of chords and we ended up writing the whole thing by the door of the lounge because we didn't sit back down again because we thought this is going to take, you know, we, we thought he was leaving. And we wrote basically the whole thing. I demoed it, sent it to Andy. Andy came back with his, uh, this amazing melody. And I was like, okay, this is easy. <laughs> Lyrically, uh, Andy, what were, you, what were you drawing upon in terms of the, the content of, of, of the song? Uh, to be honest, the, the lyrics um, in, for the first album and all those songs, um, they were stream of consciousness lyrics um begin with and then um i would just kind of once that started to take shape i would um you know play around with it and try and try and make it make some kind of sense but not too much sense Hmm. um so that was kind of as far as i as i was it through um i um i didn't consciously kind of sit down and go right i will now write some lyrics and it's going to got to be about something until the second album. Um, and I found that process really hard, really, really difficult. Um, uh, it was much easier to just come up with some nonsense and then kind of uh, work on it until it took some sort of shape. 
Mm. But I, I love that. I could, I, in terms of the lyrics, I was just a, a listener because I never had any input on that side of what was happening. And I think, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's it's a very REM thing that you throw something out there. It's 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 impressionistic essentially. You you put some words out there and people, but you make you craft them in such a way that that it's possible to then imprint an experience or an emotion you know that the listener is having onto those lyrics. And you know, I I, I loved it. It wasn't like I was thinking well this has to be about politics or something it was like you know no this can be about what's in you know it's it's those kind of lyrics that almost bypass the intellect in some ways and just go straight to the heart which is always what i'm looking for yeah and it felt um just drawing on my own experience about listening to you guys it felt really growing up as well it felt like there was a definite you know transition from being just a, a music lover to like a musician and then listening to the craft that you were what you were doing and it feeling very grown up I don't know there was definitely a a difference in terms of I think what you were doing for me anyway um I don't know that's not a question that's just me saying something (laughs) anyway (laughs) talk about in terms of getting signed and things I know because you were signed the the Oxford label with the shifty disco um and, and for the first single is that right and how did that come around andy it's every time you ask a question because there's a slight delay on your thing i always end up answering <laughs> so i'm just going to shut up this time and let no let i want you that. to answer this one because it's about stuff that happened and what details happened. <laughs> I <don't remember>. <laughs> <laughs> well i mean in, in our way to, our way of getting signed was actually kind of complicated so in terms of um when we're talking about um i got the letter from andy about um about writing some songs i got that in 93 and we started demoing in 94 and jason and andy and me actually moved in together in 94 um in to in a house called in a town called didcot and there was a lot of a lot of work done then and you know we wrote higher than reason in the living room there and we already had finest little space and solved um going. And uh then in May nineteen ninety-five, um uh I got a call from Andy and uh we went out for a walk in Oxford. By this time he'd moved out and he was living he was actually living with my brother, I think. And we went for a walk in Oxford and he said, I'm not feeling uh, we we got to the point. So Again, I, I missed out an important fact. So we, we had these songs and I actually, I was, I still thought we were a baby band and just trying to try, kind of figure out, figuring out what we were doing. Um, so I sent, I just kind of gathered up what we were doing without any intention and sent a few tapes out to people and said, you know, what do you think of this? How, how are we doing? And immediately we got people going, this is great. And we, there was a, um, the managers, uh, um, uh, it was Radiohead's managers who I actually knew through having, I, I did lights for Radiohead in the early days for the Pablo Honey tour. So I knew them through that and they were like, we want to, this is great. We want to do something with this. Mm. So early 95, um, we had an offer of a publishing deal, which was not huge, 
but it was it would have kind of given us studio time it would have given us money to be able to concentrate on it and kind of make an album and would have been the kind of first stepping stone i think it was the week before we were due to sign and he said come over to oxford and we went for a walk and he said i'm not feeling so sure about doing this you know band thing and uh i wanted to accommodate him because we've been very close friends so i said you know what is it about being in a band that is feeling uncomfortable and he said recording playing live making videos and doing interviews and i like how well right that that doesn't give us much room much leeway for maneuver there so andy actually left at that point and i had to go and tell the managers and told told joe's so so yeah that was middle of 95 and then andy went back to russia um this was after his um after uh, talking about him in the third person world <laughs> he says they're nodding podcast listeners he's nodding he's telling me that this is correct um he, he went back to moscow worked working for greenpeace this was after he finished his degree now um and then when he he came back with uh he was going to do uh an, a, a master's at oxford in russian politics i think and when he came back he had like a few months before he had he was going to move in to Oxford and start the start the masters. Um and he didn't have anywhere to go particularly and they wanted to go back to his folks' house. So I said you can move in with me you know until you're ready. And nefariously um I was upstairs playing all the demos we'd done previously very loud. And in a very English way Andy was downstairs with an acoustic guitar playing a bunch of new songs that he'd written while he'd been away but without either of us talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually I said, why don't we try this again? Um, I think, but you were very conflicted about it, weren't you, Andy? It, I, it took a while for you to decide whether you're going to do the masters or whether you're going to be in a band, as I recall. Uh, honestly, don't, I don't remember that too much, but I do remember, I do remember that period of um, starting to talk to to live and and yeah and going on the dole basically for for a while um you know because because by that time it was looking like well something's going to happen we're going to get some sort of record deal but in terms of being conflicted um i don't really remember that too well um except that those those thoughts of not quite feeling like this is really 100% me never really completely left me um so, but I think uh, Nigel's list that he that he uh, provided earlier, um, a few of those things, like I ended up being fine with, or even really happy with, like the actual recording and writing process, um, was uh, ended up being the reason to do it, um, the, mm. the thing that made it all worthwhile, um, and particularly the writing. And, and the recording of, of Almost Here, um, that was all just like uh, an amazing trip, really. But then but the, all, the other things that one, one is expected to do uh, as part of being in a band, like making videos and doing TV interviews, things like that, I was never, was never really comfortable with. So, yeah, if I was ever going to do it again, which is looking unlikely, I think I would... Um, Try and yeah, I'd do something uh 
that kind of allowed me to stay in the background more, I think, because obviously the in in the sort of singer songwriter or or indie guitar kind of milieu, it's really hard to do that, right? It's really hard to just kind of go. We're not going to talk about who we are at all. Um, we're just we're just going to be anonymous musicians. You can do that in electronic music or something, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, it's not an option. Yeah, and I, I I was I was a bit happier to talk to people, but. Um... It's that certainly it wasn't fantastic for my self-esteem when uh, I get carted into uh, do an interview, and you could tell that they're a little bit crestfallen that they were talking to the drummer. <laughs> but, um, so Ed, after Andy decided that he wanted to be in a band again, the weird thing was the fact that we'd got literally to the day before pretty much of signing this. Uh, publishing deal meant that there was a story about us in the industry so when we reappeared people were like oh it's those guys they're back again i'll give this a listen we had different managers but quite quickly um mca and virgin were um wanting to sign us and so we actually we did we signed with virgin but we said to them can we actually just delay signing for two months because uh, this local label of guys we know, guys we know called Shifty Disco, are doing the Singles Club, and we'd like our first release to be with them. So, so they delayed delayed it long enough that we put out the demo of Building um, on Shifty Disco, and then and then sold our souls souls to uh, our corporate o- overlords. <laughs> I was going to ask about the. Um signing you said you know selling your soul to a major label but what was it was it conflict were you obviously you were quite conflicted potentially about that and wanting control I mean I hear lots of horror stories about it being a poison chalice that kind of deal I mean what was it like for you did you have control or did they give you a, a good time what was it like as far as I'm aware I mean for the first album it was we had possibly the easiest most blissful experience that i think it's possible to have with a major label um i mean i I was never against major labels empirically in any way anyway um just because they're 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 a tool they're they're a company and um as long as you're trying to hang on to your integrity but it wasn't quite what i was expecting i was expecting you know imposition and control and stuff like that but uh it it just seemed to go our way. So, for instance, we were looking for producers to do the first album and we interviewed a bunch of people and nobody seemed qu- quite right. And then the A&R guy said to me, why don't you do it? You did the demos. They sound right. We'll get somebody in to co-produce with you, you know, just to see it through. But you should do it. I was like, all right. Mm. And then... And he came to the studio like midway through and, you know, we, we were expecting, expecting him to come in and go, there's no singles. We need, we need park life or something. Um, (laughs) But he just sat there, listened to everything and said, it's all fantastic. We'll pick a single once you're done and then pissed off again. (laughs) That that was it. As as I remember it, is that that how it went down? Not quite because, he said that fantastic. Um, anyone up for a game of table tennis? And then after that, he left. <laughs> yeah. So for that first album, it was it was it was easy. Sorry yeah. to 
everybody who's had a terrible time with major levels who's hearing that going, what, you bastards? But um, they just left us to it, and we seemed to make a great yeah. album. It was quite, um, I think I seem to remember it was quite a low-key start with. Um, we sort of released uh, the Stone EP, and it was all a bit like, mm, there's not much being put behind this. Um but then, like at some point, they they kind of decided actually this this album could really do something, and and they did um, throw quite a lot of money at it without kind of seizing control of what we were doing. Really, they they still kind of cut us quite a lot of slack to just be who we were. Does anything promo wise stick stick out for you guys? I mean, I remember um, seeing you on. Uh, later with Jules Holland, but w- would that have been a highlight? Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I've, I probably I remember things that were probably that weren't so high um, profile, but we we did a uh, absolutely insane local radio tour, um, which I think I mean it was only maybe six days or something in in a guy's car but we just went everywhere and we 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 seemed to be doing three four five local stations a day and we went from the very north of scotland all the way down you know we we drove so far and i had no idea where we were and we were just kind of walking into a place and the guy would go hey and then we'd play stone and then uh, he'd go hey and then we'd leave and and go to york and do exactly the same thing and and i mean i i i i like that kind of stuff because I like the the feeling like uh, you were doing some hard work aspect of it. I'm not sure everybody else felt like that. Mm. Andy? No, not really. Um, <laughs> uh, French TV, though, that was good, wasn't it? Didn't we do oh, some yeah. amazing live TV thing? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because France got on board quite early, and so we, we did a couple of times going on a show called Nulpa Ayer, which, um, where we only played a song, you know, we, we did Solved on it and then we went back and did Settle Down later on. And we did a thing called The Black Session, which was like a whole gig. The one I remember most, actually, kind of on that same promo tour, was there was a uh, radio gig. Um, and um, that we knew uh, we knew it was going to be, you know, a, a full show, essentially. But we arrived, and I think it was about an hour before it was due to start. Some guy said, uh, okay, the uh, you're going to be playing for an hour and a half, yes? And, you know, it was our first album. <laughs> we, we Even if we stretched it out, we had a maximum of an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> and we were like, oh, God. <laughs> and uh, I think we did, like, a couple of covers, and we were learning them, you know, uh, 10 minutes before we were about to go on live radio national radio in france (laughs) (laughs) Ah! but um i mean i like that kind of thing i think that was the first time we covered a mark mulcahy song as well in terms of festivals and things and and live following did you establish a live following quite early on or was that how did that work uh i mean we we went out and played we we weren't like black flag by any means but we went out and played a lot and um i remember like the higher than reason tour was that was the moment I think everybody went, holy shit, something's happening. Cause the first show on that tour, um, 
So we'd done this, we'd toured around Stone and were playing to very few people. We never got support slots really. Mm. Um, but uh, the first show of the Higher Than Reason tour was at um, Cambridge, at a place called the Boat Race. And it was absolutely rammed. And we're like, what the fuck's going on here? And there were people queuing around the block outside. Um, and that whole tour was, was really exciting. Um, but I mean, one of my, happiest unbelievable truth memories is a french festival called route de rock where uh the slot we were in um we probably weren't quite big enough for but uh, we found out that portishead were headlining and they wanted somebody a bit quieter as a buffer before them so it wasn't like rock 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 portishead um so instead they went rock 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 unbelievable truth porter said <laughs> so we were like second to headline and uh it was we really pulled it off and there were a lot of people watching us and it was it was, i loved playing live with the band because when we really got it right it wasn't it, it was more like magic than music it was this kind of atmosphere in the air a- andy's voice amplified is just like that's the kind of thing that uh, you could imagine would be a religious experience. It always was for me. And when when that kind of thing really happened, like it did that night, it was like, oof. Mm-hmm. So does that answer your question? Probably it, not. But No, it was good. It. it was a good answer. Yeah, I don't know really what I was asking, to be honest. <laughs> so I, just, <laughs> I still haven't got I can't get this right. Um, Andy, would you say that was right in terms of like festival shows and things? What, what was your kind of favourite kind of gig to play? A lot of the, well, uh, the fest- festival, you asked me about festivals, I think about Glastonbury 1998 or 9, um, which was awful in every way uh, for us, because I think we were always second on the bill to Jesus and Mary Chain in, on a, not, not on the main stage, obviously, um, and just everything was running really late. Mm-hmm. So by the time it was our turn to go on, it was, they were like, uh, right, you're doing three songs, then you're off kind of thing, um, which was which was not good. And it was just incredibly muddy and horrible. Um, <laughs> but um, I totally agree. Uh, Roots of Rock was, was, was a wonderful experience. Um, uh, but I think, I guess, not surprisingly, given our kind of music, the, um, the times when, when it... Uh, really clicked tended to be more intimate shows um and uh yeah it's it's true like sometimes it would just it would just come together and, and be and be something special and it's kind of hard to exactly pinpoint what what had to be in place and right for for that to happen I mean, I could I could imagine it being equally as impressive either side. I mean, unfortunately, I never got to see you guys play live, but the whole, you know, your music is, you know, accessible in that small, intimate venue, but, um, yeah, also anthemic in ways as well to reach a bigger audience if it needs to be. You're the best of both worlds. Thanks, mate. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you had the second album, um, and then you had a, a, a collection of miscellaneous well, it's called Bisque Music in 2001. And what was the under, what was the idea behind that double album? I mean, obviously it was just literally to sort of uh, cathartic it away to get everything together and, and release the un, the unreleased and the, the hidden tracks. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly that. So it, it came out after we'd broken up. Certainly mentally for me, 
I've I've always had a bit of a downer on the second album. Um, I produced it as well, even though I I didn't want to. I didn't feel prepared, and I wasn't in the best mental health space to do it. And it made to me that album feels a little bit kind of paranoid and twitchy. And you know, we we didn't manage to tap the world of beauty. But having said that, we were in, we were very prolific. Because I, I listened to Miss Music a little while ago, having not heard it for ages. And, you know, it's it's 22 years have gone by. So I'm not too embarrassed about being, um, about bigging myself up. But listening to that, which was a bunch of B-sides and unreleased songs, it was like, this is better than a, quite a lot of albums that I hear. You know, and this was stuff that wasn't good enough to go on sorry thank you and it was all written in that period you know we we wrote a lot of things in fact i think there's some songs on that album which probably should have been on sorry thank you Mm. but yeah it was from my point of view and it's going to be very different for andy i'm sure um i just wanted to kind of close the door on it and try and figure out what what was going to be next now that that chapter had ended so I, I I kind of put that whole thing together and um, put it out and basically, you know, independently, you know, without a label, and then forgot about it. Yeah, it's got some it's got some interesting bits bits on it, but I think my my general feeling is that it's better to. Uh, I think when I listen to let me put it this way, when I listen to other bands. Um, I get a bit put off by um, the less good stuff and I find myself like filtering out the stuff that I don't like. And then I did that with Elliot Smith, for example. And once I decided weeded out stuff that actually isn't that great, what was left, I just more and more in love with because I was only listening to the really, the stuff that really soars. Um, So that was kind of, I have a slightly different philosophy on, on it i think from nigel do you listen back to stuff uh to it at all then andrew or are you or your solo albums as well i mean how in touch with you with that with that that part of your musical career still uh do i listen to it i i listen to bits i listen to the bits that, that i i think still yeah um really transcended a bit and 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 have really kind of lasting value um which I, I think is most of almost here um except i think some of it i've just listened to many times now and or, or rather just played it so many times that i don't really feel any great desire to go back and and listen to it again mm. but i mean i think almost all of that album is is amazing and but best of all is the is uh, the song that didn't make it onto the album from this height, which um, which is probably the song I'm most proud of from from the whole the whole unbelievable truth thing. And we never brought it out properly, except in Japan, which was kind of random. And uh, so, thank you. I I I don't I don't really go back to that. I think there was there are a few songs that um, that are good, um, but. The atmosphere of it, I, 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 I don't think it's so much Nigel's uh, production that that makes it feel kind of uncomfortable listening. It's 
it's just where we all, all were at at the time, mm. including me, and trying to write these lyrics from a different, um, with a different agenda. Like I've got to make this about something that that was hard. Um, and uh, yeah, I just you know, I, I, I it's it's too tied up for me. In I remember what it was like when we were making it, and um, and in retrospect, I'm just I just wish we'd. Um, slowed down a bit and just kind of gone right these are interesting ideas um but let's keep just keep writing let's let's go back to how that was when we were all in a house and did cot together and um just writing all the time trying to recapture that that's in retrospect what i think we should have done Mm. is there any plans guys to sort of do anything with with, like re-releasing or or remastering or final because that seems that is taking off big time. Would you ever consider doing that? Well, I mean, we we don't own any of the Almost Here stuff because uh, that's all with Virgin. Um, sorry, thank you. We kind of own, but um, I don't have any of the masters for. And and I mean, there's some background um, corporate shenanigans going on with that, you know, which. Well, it would, I, I could sort out, but it just takes more effort than I've got. I mean, I'm more interested in, you know, musically speaking, we actually, we've, we've played little bits over the years. We mm. played, um, just over a year ago, we did a, we did a gig for my 50th. Um, and, you know, just me and a few friends. In a pub in Oxford, a place, you know, that was kind of special to us that we played lots of times. And, um, when I, when I asked, I thought Andy would be kind of dubious about the whole thing. I thought he'd be doing me a favor. And he was like, yeah, great. Can we do, uh, from this height? And I was like, yeah, sure we can. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that was really fun. I think if we were to uh, make another record, it would have to be once we got into the Guinness Book of Records for the longest gap between album two and album three for any band ever. (laughs) <laughs> I think you're teasing a, a, a you're teasing something. I mean, I might be reading too much into it, but I, I reckon you guys are gonna you've been secretly recording for the last two or three years, and you've got an album coming out next year. That's what you're you're sensibly telling me there. <laughs> well, you can believe that if you'd like, because uh, I'm never never one to take away somebody's dreams. <laughs> oh, I could dream, Archie. I'll just keep dreaming. Um, but, yeah, well, I mean, it could happen, though, couldn't it? I mean, you know, you never say never. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I I never say never. Do you ever say never, Andy? <laughs> Sometimes I say never, but um, <laughs> to that idea, I'm not going to say never. <laughs> oh, there's a string of hope there, guys. Yeah. I'm I'm I've, I'm going to let you go. I've had you for an hour, and I think you you. Yeah, I don't want to keep you for too long, but uh, longer. I, I've really really enjoyed our chat, and um, you, you you know the deep dive in to one of my favorite bands ever unbelievable truth so it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you guys talk about it and uh going in depth in some of the recording and and the writing of it all so thank you so much and maybe next uh episode i'll get you back on to talk about all the solo projects and things as well that's another hour i think or two <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm happy to i mean there's, there's there's some things even in in our career that we skated over yes. so uh so yeah i'm, I'm happy for another one <laughs> we'll go I'm part ready. two <laughs> yeah i mean it's clearly you've probably noticed that i can just blab on incontinently for england so whereas andy 
waits until there's something intelligent to say and says that <laughs> we're kind of a good tag team in that way it's podcast and, uh, gold guys <laughs> podcast gold and, <laughs> and w- when jace was involved in interviews you know at the end of me blabbing on incontinently and andy saying intelligent things jace would go yep and that would be <laughs> his contribution well I, again thanks thanks again guys total pleasure and lovely to hang out with you as well andy it's always lovely to see you you too all right. Bye. Take Bye, care. Everybody. Take care. Bye.